like to have sin each and every day torment us and come at us and pull us away. And not only do we have that internally, but then we live in a world that is built around sinful culture and pulls us away from God. And what each and every one of us has encountered is we've at least had some experience with God that has invited us to take steps forward with Him. But still, along that journey, we have these moments where we're pulled back. We're pulled back to our old way of thinking, our old ways, and our old actions. And in those moments, we need to look at how did God lead His people to leave behind the old and come into the new. And so as we read this, it's not just about the Israelites. It's about you and your journey with God and how you progress into a new life with Him. Now, as we've been going through this, there's been three verses that we keep coming back to that we call the key to the series. And these are three verses I really want you to meditate upon. I want you to put into your hearts, and I want them to be added to your toolbox so that as you go through life and you hit these moments where it's hard to be on this journey, you remember these truths and you use them to encourage you and to build up hope within you that you can keep moving forward. And so the first one has been found in Luke 16, 13. It says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And again, each week I tell you, forget the word money, you cannot serve God, and you can replace that with anything else. You can only have one master. And I really love that word master, because it's just blatant about what the relationship with Jesus is supposed to be. This is not your friend. This is not your homeboy. This isn't your buddy. This isn't your pal. This isn't your backup plan. This isn't your insurance policy. This is your Lord and Master. To be honest, a lot of us as Christians, we treat Jesus like insurance. We don't like a lot of the Christian rules. We don't like getting up early for church. We don't like obeying and doing. But in case of fire... I want to know, I got Jesus, and he'll cover that for me. And I swear, that's why a lot of the churches you run into, the energy and excitement of them isn't there. It matches the energy and excitement you show each month when you write your check to your insurance company. Right? How many of you, when you sign your check for your insurance, go, yes, love doing that. That was fun. Let's do it again. In fact, I'm going to send a little bit extra this month. None of us. It's like a necessary evil we have to have in our lives. And if we didn't have to have it, we probably wouldn't. If that mentality is what is the foundation of your relationship with Christ, this is going to be a crummy relationship. He's not your fire insurance. The point of a relationship with God is not heaven. It's Him. It's every day experiencing His love, His presence, His power. That's the gift. Heaven is like the greatest side effect in the history of mankind. That if you have a loving relationship with God, what you also get is paradise forever. And so we as Christians have to determine, is God just in our lives or is He the lead of our lives? Is He the master of our lives? It's the first thing we must decide. If we don't decide that, we'll never be on this journey. You will be on your own journey and occasionally as your path crosses God's, you'll run into each other. But that will explain why many times you won't feel Him. Because you weren't on His path, you were on yours. And so the first thing we must decide, is He my master and am I His servant? The second thing that we acknowledge is, is in Proverbs 3.5, we see that if I've started over, if I've pushed away the old life and I've taken on a new one, and now Jesus is my Lord, Guess what? My logic, my way of doing things, the value propositions I put on things in life, I have to throw them all away. Because I've been taught by the world that is based in sin how to value, how to measure, and how to see. And so along this journey where God's calling the shots, often what I'm going to run into is He's going to ask me to do things. He's going to instruct me to go a certain way. And I'm going to look at it and go, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. I don't get that. And what you and I have to understand is when we talk about him being our master, not our advisor, that means I do what he says even if I don't get it. Amen. See, an advisor, that we go, please tell me your thoughts, and if I agree with them, if I like them, maybe I'll listen to them. I can choose what to obey and not to obey. And as Christians, we do this all the time. 
Right? We have the certain rules we want to follow. The other ones are like, ah, I don't really think that pertains to me in this situation necessarily. But if God is not your advisor, he's your master. When you don't understand, you pay attention to this. You trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. The world has complicated, dark things happen. Like this week, do we all understand what happened in Florida? Do we all get that? Do we all understand like... This is just regular now. Like it used to be like occasional, and now you're, you're almost not even surprised anymore. And there's a lot of people, when we talk to them, they'll go, if you're God so good, if you're God so great, if you're God so powerful, where was he? Why didn't he do something? And to be honest, in those moments, what we have to understand is, I've got to lean on his understanding, not mine. Because you know what? If we were God, we probably would have done it differently. But we would have messed it up. God is good. God is perfect. And God is measuring and watching everything that is happening. And everything that happens, happens for a reason and for a purpose. And He is watching all those things happen. And even when it doesn't make sense to us, we have to go, I trust the Father. I trust the Father and I know He has purpose in this. I may not see it right now, but I know it's there. And I'm going to trust and lean in Him. And then the third thing we've said is, along this journey, if He's our Master, and we're trusting in Him, one thing has to happen. You and I got to change. You and I have to start looking more like Him. And so in 1 Peter 1, it says in verses 14 and 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Amen. we got to see along this path that we become something different. And the key to it is, is it's not that you set out to be different. It's that you set out to be with God. And in being in God's presence, you become something different. We were sitting there uh, last night and, and we told Jake that we were going to go get a snack. And um, we're in the car and he's like, where are we going? Where are we going? And it's so fun when they're like two and a half and they just talk all the time. Because right? they have their own thoughts and ideas, but they're good at communicating them now. Where are we going? Where are we going? And we said, we're going to get a snack. And he goes, oh, oh my goodness, I'm so excited. And we're like, oh my goodness, what is that? And from that moment on, like, I've heard oh my goodness from him like six times. It's his new favorite phrase. This morning, Dad, where are we going? We're going to church. Oh my goodness. And we're sitting there and we're thinking, like, where did he pick this up? And then Nicole said it, and I'm like, oh, you do say that all the time, don't you? He picks up these phrases. Why? He's in her presence with her all the time. This is how she talks. And so what is he doing? He's saying the same things. He's saying the same things. That's how it should be with our Father in Heaven. That we're in His presence. We see how He acts. We see how He is. And we start to be that way too. If that's not happening, it means you're not with Him. And so we fall back on these three things throughout this journey. He's the Master. I trust in Him and I should become more like Him. That should be happening. Now where we're at is go ahead and get your Bibles. We're going to be in Exodus 12. Today we are in the Passover. So up to this moment, what we've had is Moses has shown up. He's acknowledged that God has created him for a purpose. And that purpose is to lead the Israelites out of slavery. He has gone to Pharaoh and he has asked for them to be released. And for nine different times, Pharaoh has said no. To be honest, and just to frame this up, because we talked about wrath a lot last week. I think one thing I didn't hit enough on is, do you understand how merciful God really is in this? Right. I was telling the kids in Sunday school, like, at my house, we count to three, max. God's sitting here with the Egyptians counting to ten. Let my people go. No. Okay, this is going to happen. Let my people go. Okay, how about this? No. Okay, how about this? 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 Nine times divine intervention of such magnitude it impacts an entire nation happens with God going, let my people go. And nine times, Pharaoh goes, uh-uh. 
Not happening. And in fact, what we have to be honest about, it's not even just Pharaoh. It's a whole nation. We've seen nations overthrow their leaders for much less than this. But the people have dug their feet in and they ain't moving. This is our God, this is our ways, and you're not taking these people. We ain't budging. And God goes, okay. Okay. If that's how you want to play it, we can play it that way. And so in the Passover, what we see is we see finally this, this act of such magnitude that it is going to shake their hearts. It is going to change their viewpoints. And so today as we read that, I want you to pick up on a few different things though. I want you to step back from seeing the wrath that we looked at last week. And I want you to put yourselves in the position of the Israelites. Take yourself out of the position of God's enemy and put yourself in the positions of God's children. And think about what he says and how he instructs these people in this moment. Exodus chapter 12 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. To all the congregation of Israel, that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs that they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you. On the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats with it leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For on this very day I brought you, your host, out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from your congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall not eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel of the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of this house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel on the two doorposts, the door, Lord will pass over the door, and he will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you, and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people worshipped and bowed their heads. Then the people of Israel went and did so 
as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Long passage, but I want you to pay attention to a couple things. The first is, notice that God guarantees victory even in the midst of despair. Amen. What's interesting to me about this entire passage is that think about what God actually spends most of the time talking about. He spends most of the time talking about how they will celebrate this victory that hasn't even happened. God hasn't struck anybody down yet. God hasn't killed any Egyptians. He hasn't saved his people. And what is he planning? This is how you're going to celebrate this moment from here on out forever. In fact, I got detailed plans on how I want this party handled. And he sits there and he breaks them down to a T. This is what you'll eat. This is the days it's supposed to happen. This is how you prepare your food. This is how you're supposed to be dressed when you have the meal. This is what you're going to do for the entire month. Now, I guarantee you, there had to be some of the Israelites sitting there listening to these instructions going, hey, by the way, have you noticed we're still slaves right now? I mean, glad you want to free us, but before we plan the party, could we maybe, I don't know, be freed? Could we maybe do that first? Could we maybe take care of that and then talk about the celebration plan? I mean, this is, this is deciding your victory parade before you've even played the game. It seems completely and utterly out of order. And in fact, in Scripture, more time is spent on discussing the party and how the party will happen every year than the actual actions of the Passover. He spends way more time on that. And I think it's important for you and I to acknowledge that this isn't the only time that God does this. God frequently comes to people in the darkest moments of their lives and goes, victory's coming. Victory's coming. In fact, I want you to be unbelievably excited about the victory that's coming. I want you to have complete confidence that it's here. Here's how we're going to celebrate it. Here's how we're going to praise it. Here's how we're going to live in it. And for the people hearing it, it's like, uh, by the way, I'm still not out of this yet. Why, why are we doing this? I mean, anybody a sports fan? Have you ever, have you ever like, thought you jinxed your team? I remember like about eight years ago, I was a much bigger Bulls fan than I am now. I, I, I don't know, as I get older, sports just don't mean as much. Um, but I remember like we were watching one of these games against the Celtics and it was a really good game and Nicole's like, I can't believe they're going to win. And I'm like, what are you doing? You can't say that. There's 42 seconds left. We could still lose. We don't talk about a win until the buzzer happens. And here's God before he's done anything going, victory. Victory's here. It is here. In fact, this victory is going to be the greatest thing you've ever seen. We're going to celebrate it every single year. We see him do this all the time. Remember Abraham's covenant? He's sitting there talking to an 80-year-old guy with no kids going, you're going to have more children than you can even count. And Abraham's like, have you seen my wife? I mean, not to be rude, but we're a little up there, you know? And there's God. No, you will have more than you can count. More than you can count. It's the same God that talks to Moses in the middle of nowhere. We were just there a few weeks. Moses is a runaway murderer hanging out in the wilderness. And God's like, you're going to free my people. You're going to free my people. Moses is like, I don't even know who I am, man. I've been running from my past. Me? Who are you talking to? This first question, do you know who I am? And God's like, yes, I do. And I know exactly what I'm going to do with you. It's the God who sits there as they're, before they cross the Jordan into the promised land. And he's telling them, you're going to take rocks and you're going to put them up as a memorial. And your children are going to ask you one day about these and you're going to tell them about what I'm doing for you. This is a God who regularly, before the victory even shows up, is planning how you celebrate it, how you memorialize it, how you remember it. He's all about this. Continually. It's the same God that at the Last Supper, 
as Jesus is sitting about to stare down the worst 48 hours of his life, is talking about the victory that his father is bringing. Even though he knows he's about to have one of the people he loves the most betray him, he knows he's about to be falsely convicted, he knows he's about to be beaten, killed, tortured, and done terrible things to, and he can sit there and go, when you take this bread and this cup again, you will be proclaiming my victory. Continually, God, in the midst of what seems like utter darkness, asked his people to celebrate victory. And not to do it half-heartedly, but to do it boldly, to do it all in, and to do it for everyone to see. And so as we, as Christians, we've got to think about this. Because there's some of us, we can't do this. We're only good at praising God when good things are happening. We're only good at giving it all to Him when it makes sense to do so to us. Which is, again, how the world thinks. Right? In the world, who do you love? The world teaches you to love people who have earned your love. And the moment they stop earning your love or they stop treating you right, what do you do? You leave. That's what the world teaches. I'll give you stuff for free. If I've got something of value, you better earn it. I better get something for that. God teaches us to think completely and utterly different. You guys are judging victory and defeat by the circumstances of temporariness that are around you. I see so much more. I see so much more. And the reason that God can do this is because He knows things you and I don't. It's why He tells us in Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You have to be kind of crazy. That's what I'm telling you. You have to be the people that can look at the circumstances around you and when all the world can see is darkness, you go, I know victory's lying right ahead. You need to be the person that when pain, hurt, and suffering are all you feel, you know in here, the victory's already been won for you. And when others would be crushed, you stand up because you know your God is not leaving you with that bag. We've got to be the people that even when there's no evidence of it, we look back and we know what our Father God has done. It's so strange to us because we have such short memories. There's such short memories. It's funny that sometimes you and I, with the problems that we face in our lives, can look back at a God who has done these kind of things and go, I don't know if He's going to help me out here. You know, I know He could create the universe... I know he could split the Red Sea. I know he could make the ten plagues. But I don't know if he could help me find a job. I think that one might be too difficult. Really? Do you really think that? Do you really think any of the problems that you could list right now, that you could give to this God that we've been talking about, and he'd go, I can't help you out on that one. That one's just a little too big for me. No. Not at all. In fact, most of the things that you and I are stressed about now, when we compare them to the victories he's had, they're nothing. They're absolutely nothing. And so are we these people? Are we these people that have the conviction of that which is not seen? Are we a people that truly sit here today with a boldness in our spirits because we know the victory's already come? We already know how this game ends. And it ends with Christ being glorified by the world with you and me standing beside Him. Do we truly believe that? Because for some of us, I see us wallowing in the despair. I see us being consumed by the circumstances around us. I see the world pulling us down and letting these temporary things ignore the victory that God has won for us in the long run. We've got to stop that. God tells these people, you get ready. You put your sandals on, you put your cloak on, you strap your belt, you grab your staff, and you eat fast food. Because we're moving. You don't have time for a long dinner. And I guarantee you, there was some sitting there like, God, you've you've already done unbelievable things to these people, and he is not budging at all. We're stuck here. And God's going, get ready. Because we will be leaving before you can barely finish that meal. You've got to have that kind of conviction. 
when your eyes lie to you, but your heart knows that God's telling you the truth. Look at Romans 12.12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Notice, rejoice. Be patient in tribulation. In the worst of moments, you still sing songs. In the worst of moments, you still praise. In the worst of moments, your hope is the strongest because you know your God will come through. That's what has to define us as a people. Guess what? Everybody's happy when life's going well. Everybody's optimistic when everything's going their way. What defines the people of God is that we're strange and that we're weird and that when everything looks like it's stacked against us, we still praise. We still have joy. We still look untouchable, not because we don't feel the pain, but because we know it is nothing in comparison to the glory that is coming our way. That's who God wants His children to be. And the reason for that is the victory is only dependent on Him. See, the reason that God can sit here before He's done a single thing and go, (laughs) plan the parade, is because He knows the only thing that matters is what He's about to do. And what He knows is, I don't fail, I don't come up short, and there is no one that can oppose me. So my child, if I tell you to get ready because we're leaving tonight, we are leaving tonight. And there ain't a force in this world that's going to stop us. This isn't about whether you're talented enough. This isn't about whether you have enough faith. This isn't about your characteristics or your resume in any way, shape, or form. This is about God saying, I will do, do you believe? That's what this is about. And as a people, why He's given us this unbelievable gift, this book that walks us through how He has interacted with those that He loves for centuries. Why it's so beautiful is, is even in our own lives, when we struggle to find evidence, we have this. The same God who did all these things is your God. The same God that did these unbelievable miracles is the God that is in your life. If He can do that, He can work through you. Believe that. Take hope in it. and Be strong in it. Every Sunday I tell you guys that we should have a spirit not of timidity, but of power, of love, and of self-discipline. I'll be honest. I think people get power, and I'm sorry, I think they get self-discipline, and I think they get love. We've all talked about love, and we, I mean that, that, that's just the common thing that is always preached upon. And self-discipline, I think if you spend any time in the Word, you start to understand God has a different way that He wants His people to live. And I think we've all run into that where we've had to experience the limits of our own self-discipline. I think those two things people get. I don't think a lot of Christians get power. I don't think a lot of Christians get power. And honestly, it's why so many churches, you know what you don't have? Men. You don't have men because what they've been taught is being a Christian guy means to be a nice guy. Be nice, be kind, follow the rules, be a good guy. And to be honest, like no little boy's like dream is to be a good guy. They want to be heroes. They want to conquer the world. They want to do amazing things. They want to do epic things. And so when they come into a system that basically tells them, hey, restrain a lot of those crazy things and just be quiet and nice. It's like, eh, okay, not really, my cup of tea. I guess I can do that. But it's why even when they're here, there's not this passion, there's not this energy, there's not this fire. Because they think what God's asking them to do is to restrain themselves. Is not. God's here to fuel you up more than you've ever been fueled up. God's here to point you to do things you never dreamed you could do. And where the power He's talking about comes is from the kind of people that can stand and take the worst that the world offers and go, you cannot break me. Bring it. All you have is temporary circumstances to play with. You can't touch my eternity. I know that and I'm bold in it. So bring it. I'm not backing down. I'm not giving an inch. I ain't moving from this spot because the power of God is with me and He will keep me here. There's too many of us that fear is in our lives. That it restrains us and stops us from moving forward. Even in little things. 
How many of you are afraid to have a conversation with somebody about Christ because you might offend them? How many of you are afraid to put your faith on display because of what people might think? I mean, let's just wake up for a few moments and realize we have Christians across this world that die for their faith and we're worried about people's feelings. That's not power. It's not boldness. That's timidity. God doesn't have any of those constraints because He knows the only thing that matters is Him. His victory is in Him and in His power and in His ability. Look at these verses. Psalm 108, 13. With God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. Amen. Who brings Him down? God does. Not you. Him. Amen. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. I don't care if there's fire in front of me. I keep marching forward. It's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looking at Nebuchadnezzar and saying, our God can save us from this. And even if He doesn't, I won't bow to you. For that is my God. It's that kind of boldness. That kind of courage. Do we have that? 1 Corinthians 2.5 That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know what this world is great at? Telling you why you can't do things. It's phenomenal at it. And you know what we do too often? We listen. We listen so much to the excuses and the negativity of the world and listen so little to the powerful proclamations of our God. I don't care how impossible it seems. If God says do it, you do it. Because He can make it happen. But there's too many of us, when we hear God, we go, well, let me think about that. Does that make sense? Is that logical? Is now the right time? I don't know if now is the right time. And we get caught up in thinking about things instead of just being good servants that do. That do what God has asked. Let's be real. Passover makes no sense. Logically, the Israelites getting ready for a party then makes no sense. They've been slaves for 400 years. God has just done all of these things and the Pharaoh won't move. There is nothing that suggests to them that they're about to be victorious except the voice of their father saying, it's going to happen right now. And see, brothers and sisters, this is where Christianity becomes about relationship. If all Christianity to you is a system, a way of life, a philosophy, this doesn't make any sense. Because those things break. Those things fail. It has to be a relationship where in these moments when everything seems stacked against you and God instructs you to move forward, that the reason that keeps you going is Him. Is that you look at Him and you go, for no one else would I take this step. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. And I don't think it's going to work. But God, because you, you ask me, I go. Because I love you that much. I trust you that much. I have that much faith in you. That's why so many Christians struggle. Is that they take on this way of life, this Christianity, and they accept the morality of it. And they go, there's wisdom in this. It makes sense. But they don't have relationship with God, but they do have relationship with people in the world. And when those people of the world call to them and pull them, they go... These are my these are my boys. These are the people always on my back. And do you know what I've been through with these folks? I'm just gonna let that go for this religion? I don't know if I can do that. What it needs to be is them versus your father. And you look at them and go, if you think I would ever choose you guys over him, you're crazy. I will ride with him the whole way. It's gotta be that kind of relationship. Luke one thirty seven. for nothing will be impossible with God. I kind of, I have to be honest, I kind of get aggravated by this verse. You know why? Most people know it. Very little live like it. It's almost one of those things where like, you almost wish nobody knew it, so you could at least plead ignorance. You could at least be like, well, the reason these people aren't that courageous is because they don't get this yet. They haven't heard it. I'm sure once they hear it, it's totally going to change the way they act. But unfortunately, it's like, no, everybody knows this. But nobody lives like it. 
people still continually go to God and go, it's just impossible. He handles the impossible all the time. That's kind of what he does. Do you believe that? I want you to flip with me to 2 Timothy 4. This is one of my... I shouldn't say that. I always say that every week. It's one of my favorite passages. My wife's like, could you please tell me your least favorite passages? Because I don't know which ones they are. <laughs> 2 Timothy 4. Look at 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. I love that passage because if you understand the setting of it, it changes everything. When you read that, you think of somebody sitting in comfort. You think of somebody sitting in a position of power and authority, looking at their life and going, I did it. I did it. Right? Like, let's be honest. When you hear people of the world say statements like that, where are they typically at? Right? They've just been promoted. They got the nice new car and they got the big house and they're going, I did it. Do you see this? Do you see what I've made? I accomplished it all. Do you know where Paul's at? He's in prison. He's in prison with not a dime to his name, with no friends, not even a cloak to keep himself warm, in physical pain and hurt because of ailments, with guards watching his every move, imagining that death is at his doorstep, and he goes, I've done it. I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. And there is a crown that my Father has for me. That is power. That is a man who looks at anything this world can throw at him and laughs at it. In fact, one of my favorite things is there's this moment where the enemies of Paul are like, what do we do with you? We put you in jail and you make it a church. We beat you and you say, thank you for making me suffer like my Lord. We let you free and you just convert more people. We don't know what to do with you. Torture you, you're happy. Throw you in jail, you're happy. We kill you, you say thanks for sending me home. And if we put you free, you're our enemy. We don't know how to defeat you. Amen. That's how the whole world should feel about all of us. The world should look at this group of people and go, we don't know what to do to you. We literally have no idea how to inflict harm upon you. Yes, we can temporarily throw roadblocks in your way, but they do nothing to your spirit. They do nothing to your soul. That's the kind of thing I want to see in us. Because here's what you learn about that man. God has made him invincible. Because what he is trusted is, I have given everything that matters to God and no one's taking it from my father. No one. The feeble things I hold, go ahead, you can have them. What really matters, you can't touch. Victory is the definition of my life. I want us to be those people. And that's what God was doing in the Passover. As He was coming to His people and He wanted them to get. I know some of you don't think we're going to be victorious right now. I want you to know, I have complete confidence in it. In fact, I'm planning how we will celebrate this moment from here on out. So you stand there in your doubt and watch what I will do. Watch what I will do. We have to be people who can look at this word and take hope in it. And if you just stop for a minute, I guarantee you, even in your own life, you can look back and find the victories God brought you when you thought He couldn't. Don't forget them. It's funny, I think a lot of us have fallen into this mentality of letting go of the past. And what God means by not living in the past is that you and I got to realize we can't fix anything that happened back then. The mistakes we've made are done. We can only lay them at God's hands and ask Him to forgive them for us, and He will. But what we should be continually looking to the past for is those victories that God gave us. Those other moments in our lives where we thought we were at our last breath where we thought the darkness was as black as it could ever be, where we thought there was no chance for victory, 
and he made one. And we should know those things, we should cherish those things, we should praise those things, so that in our current moments of darkness, we look back and go, you know what, you were with me through all those, God. I know you'll be with me here today. Because ultimately what this is about is do you have faith in Him? It's not about the world. It's not about you. It's about do you have faith in Him? Amen. This last verse, John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Yes, you will have tribulation in it. Yes, there will be pain. Yes, there will be trials. But I died on that cross and I have overcome that world. It no longer holds you as its slave. Do you believe that? Do you live that? Our Father died on that cross to make that true. He spilt His blood to make that true. How dare we not live like that? Be bold. Be powerful. And be the people that do not walk by sight, but by faith. Amen. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come before You, Lord, we thank You for who You are. Not, Father, for what You've given us, but for who You are. The powerful, the loving, the ever-present, the all-knowing, the almighty God. The creator of the universe, the one that shaped us in our mother's womb. Father, there is no one and no thing that can stand against you. And Father, as your children, we bow before you. And we give you all we are and all we have. Father, I pray that you will rip the fear out of our hearts. And that you will give it the spirit that you have in us. That, Father, your power, your love, your strength, your might, that it will flow through us. That, Father, no more will we shiver before this world. No longer will we tremble in the darkness. But, Father, may we put our armor on, may we stand boldly by you, and may we take what you have given us. Father, make this church a church of boldness. Make these people a people of courage. Father, may we go and make disciples as you have asked us, as you have commanded us to do. Father, we trust in you. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask you guys where you're at just to go to the Lord in prayer for a couple minutes. Just where you're at, go to your Father and you talk to Him. And you ask God to take all that fear out of you and to replace it with faith, with power. Joe, will you come up? Folks, as we're singing, if there's anything on your hearts that you just need to have somebody else praying for you with, feel free to come forward or go to the back with Brother James, and we'll be glad to pray with you. Know that you're not alone.
sacrifice that saved my life. Yes, the blood, it is my victory. Save your God's people said? Amen. Amen. Uh, Sister Pat has asked just for a moment to share with you something that God's done in her life, so I'm going to go ahead and give her the mic here. Uh, about two months ago, I came up here and I asked for the people to pray for me and my husband, and that because we've been married 58 years, and uh, that's a long time, and I want my husband to be saved, but that's not my problem now. Amen. I asked for y'all to pray for him, Amen. but y'all prayed for me. And my husband is still in the condition he was in, and I that's God's that's God's problem. Y'all prayed for me and he changed my heart. Amen. He changed me and gave me a love for my husband that I don't understand. He's, he's the same man. He's bitter and he's, he's, a, he's a sick man. He's, he's got everything, diabetes, everything, you know, so he's very discouraged all the time. He has very little faith. 
But little by little, I can see changes in Him. And God has given me the grace to be kind to Him, to pray for Him, to love Him, to respect Him. He told me that's what I had to do. I had to respect my husband because that's what God told me to do. It's in the Bible that the wife is supposed to love and respect her husband. And he has given me a respect for him and a love for him. And I thank you. Each, everybody that prayed for me, I thank you from the bottom of my heart that God has given me a life with my husband again. And I thank you very much for all your prayers. Jesus. Keep on keeping on. No, pray for us. Thank you so much. Amen. Thank you, Pat, for sharing. Guys, that's what we are. We're a family. We're in this together. And what we see is God never promises it'll be easy, but He promises He will give you everything you need to get through. So I remind you, you do not have a spirit of timidity. You have one of power, of love, and self-discipline. And second, you have a mission. It's to go make disciples that love God, love people, and follow Jesus. So get to it. I love you guys. Have a great week. James, wait. Wednesday night study papers up here. Study notes on the podium. All right, you guys have a good week. Love you guys. Some love and heal